Hi, my name is Ali Reza Mujibian, and welcome to Noteworthy. Wilfred Kelly and I met in the summer of 2017 as a part of a group of students from the University of British Columbia and Northern Florida performing in productions of Puccini's La Boheme and Rossini's The Barber of Seville in the Czech Republic. I should mention, however, that Wilfred's reputation for being a kind colleague and friend on and off stage preceded him. In fact, the first time I heard their name was in 2015, after that year's summer production, when Friends Coming Back could not stop about them and their rich bass baritone voice with a twist of whistle tone. Yes, I know that may sound off slightly vocally, um, I thought so too, but once you meet Wilford, you see that it perfectly makes sense because it's perfectly Wilford. Hi, Will. Thanks for being the inaugural guest for our second season. How are you? Doing pretty well, Ali. Happy to talk to you. So you were born and raised in Miami, Florida, and moved to Jacksonville for university. But now you live all the way over in San Francisco, and you've become hugely successful winning competitions and contracts from festivals uh, around the United States, and most recently becoming a full-time member of the San Francisco Opera Chorus. So with that said, where, how, and when did Wilfred Kelly get into music and into opera? So my family is very, very musical. Um, basically, every person I've come in contact with has some sort of musical influence or some part of their life that was overly musical. My grandparents used to sing. My granddad played euphonium. My mom used to play organ in a church. She tries to keep that on the low. Um, so, you know, of course, when I was born, I was immediately put into church choir at like three years old and I would stand in the front row because I couldn't see over the pews. So I got into high school and I was going to this high school that was, well, I was like doing this thing called dual enrollment, which was basically high school and college at the same time. Um, I ended up leaning towards science and neuroscience specifically. Uh, and at the same time in my family church, I had spent two years leading the youth choir. And then when I was a junior in high school, I switched to leading the sanctuary choir, which was like all these adults being led by a 16 year old. <laughs> it was very, uh, it, it was certainly a, a weird dynamic, you know? So every year in Florida, they have a big conference. Basically they call it an all state conference because everyone all over the state is invited. Uh, and from all of these districts, they select an all-state band, an all-state chorus, a men's chorus, a women's chorus, all kinds of stuff. It's just like a musical weekend of every kind of music you could think of. My senior year, I get to school and had sort of been in and out of choir rehearsals. Like I'd come to like one a week and there'd be like three. So there's this one where the choir director, she gives me this large manila envelope and she says, give this to your mom. It's something about like PTA and blah, 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 blah. Cause my mom had just joined the PTA. And I said, okay. So I didn't think to like open it or anything like that. I just left it closed and gave it to my mom. And my mom filled out whatever was in it, closed back up the envelope and sent it back with me. And, and you I said, still didn't check? No, I didn't. Cause I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I was like, I'm not trying to get in trouble for peeping, so I'm Fair. just going to hand the envelope back. And she opens it up, and she's like, it's your Allstate 
stuff. And I was like, oh my, <laughs> she finally got me. She had given me that information for like two years prior, literally each year, one time. And every time I would just lose the paper and not ever do anything about it. That year, she sent it directly to my mother. <laughs> she knew, and you, she knew that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't um, go around the corner and check what's inside the package. No, yeah, she knew. I was, I was a good boy. I was a good boy. <laughs> uh, so basically, she was like, "Okay, we're going to prepare you for the audition," and blah 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 blah. And I was like, "Audition." Uh, fast forward um, about a month, uh, there was a theory test we had to study for, and we had to do some sight reading. And then once all that went down, there was going to be a second round, like a couple weeks later, where we were going to actually have to sing excerpts from the pieces, right? So I get there, I think it was like 7.30 in the morning. My mother was like, this is going to work out great. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I sit down and I've been studying the past couple of days. And then I realized, okay, this isn't that hard, blah, 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 blah. I'm like flying through the test. And the study guide that I'd found online happened to just be like really good because it was basically verbatim. So I fly through the test and I was like, hmm, maybe that'll <laughs> go well. I, I didn't expect to have a shot at this at all. So then we go into the sight reading. And so at the time I would just transition everything into saxophone music in my head. And then it became really easy. And there were five excerpts. So I did four of them without an issue. And then the fifth one, was in some weird time signature that I didn't want to count. So I just gave up. And I was like, my mom would be mad at me if she knew that I did that. But anyway, so I was like, all right, I did it. My mom was like, I'm so proud of you. Two weeks later, I get to school one morning and the course director is standing outside the building staring at me. And I said, what is she doing? And then she waves me over. And I was like, what's up? She said, you made it to round two. And she was like, you had the eighth highest score in the district on everything. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So round two, uh, we show back up to the school. We're in a cafeteria and we're all like sitting with this music. It, I just had never seen this many musicians in the same place at the same time. Like even being in band in high school, it was cool. But, you know, our band was our band. It was like 40, 50 people. Uh, it wasn't like a room of 200 teenagers all singing the same, ah, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like what? <laughs> so I, it was like exhilarating. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so new to this. And you know, the little show kids that were used to it were like, mm, you've, this is your first time. You've never gotten in. You, what are you saying? Me and the mic. Um, Mariah Carey. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, so I go into the audition. It ends up going well. And one of the judges like smiles at me. And I said, okay, whatever. Literally the next day, my director is screaming when I walk onto the campus. She says, well, you got it. You got it. I'm like, what? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't know what this means. So fast forward, we have this, we go to Tampa and we're at the thingy and there was a college fair. My mom used to tell me, whenever there's a college fair, you go. And I said, okay. So I went to the college fair and I'm walking through and my director said, you know, you should look at the UNF table. Um, my daughter goes there and had great things to say about the choral program and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, whatever. So um, I heard her say that. 
And then I saw the UNF table and I saw what would be my undergrad teacher. But he has resting, um, <laughs> I'm not happy face. And so I saw that and I got scared, you know, 18 year old. I'm like, I'm not trying to go up against anybody. So I walked up towards the, the booth and then I walked past it because I was just like, I'm too scared. Uh, and then I walked back and my choral director was like, have you gone to the UNF table yet? And I was like, no, uh, uh, and she literally took me by my wrist and walked me up to the table. And I said, hi there, I'm Will Kelly. And I wanted to find out more about the program. And he literally was like, oh, I can hear you have a bite in your voice. You must be a good singer. Let me tell you about our, our opera trip to the Czech Republic. And blah, 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 blah. And was showing me pictures and it was like off to the races. I was like, oh my gosh. And I remember reading the requirements because, you know, I have basically no knowledge of classical music repertoire. And I was like, okay, Dr. Brown, that was the name of my choir director. When we got back from Allstate, I was like, I need your help. So I learned this little um, Italian ditty uh, called Perche Dolce Caro Bene. Uh, but at the time I said Perche Dolce Caro Bene. <laughs> and it was, it was not the cutest. And then also The Vagabond by Rayfon Williams. And I went into that audition at UNF. Oh, and there was another musical theater piece called If I Have to Live Alone. So I get in there and I open with the musical theater piece because I was going to do the Vaughn Williams, but I got too scared. And at the time, I hadn't been singing it with like a pianist. I was just learning it on my own. So I was like, I've never sung this with piano. <laughs> um, so the musical theater piece went well, in my opinion. And then we get to the Italian. And I made it through like maybe two. I was literally was like, and that was about it. <laughs> I looked over because I was like, I don't know where I am. And they were like, it's okay. No, it's fine. And I was like, oh my God, I better just like, you know, blew this whole audition. Uh, so then I get a sight singing piece and Dr. Hall is like, all right, what's the first pitch? I said, D. He says, what's the key signature? I said, D major. And he was like, thank you for getting that right. And I said, have people been getting that wrong? <laughs> I'm in better shape than I thought. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Maybe I got it. And then the sight singing went really well. Uh, and so, you know, I'm leaving and I'm like, okay, maybe I got it. And Dr. B comes running around the wall. And he stops me and he's like, we want you here in the fall. We'll find some scholarship money for you, blah, 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 blah. Just plan on coming here. I said, okay. And then it was off to the races. And I ended up falling in love with what my career path is now. <laughs> uh, and it seems like every opera I find and every year I'm presented with new ones. I I'm just like, wow, I'm so happy that I found this avenue. I finally feel at home and I don't feel bored like, or that I'm just doing something because like I can make it through. Um, it finally feels like I'm able to put a piece of myself into it because I can relate to it. Your most recent accomplishment uh, has been uh, attaining a full-term contract with um, the San Francisco Opera Chorus, uh, but you were also a member of the uh, studio art. You were a studio artist for uh, with Wolf Trap Opera in their 2019 season. How was that experience? 
that experience was unlike any that I had ever had before. Uh, so my experience with, you know, summer programs and young artist stuff was basically the Czech Republic trip that UNF and UBC used to do um, in my undergrad. So that one, you know, we were sort of sheltered, like help that my teacher at the time was one of the people that was heading up the trip. So I'd always know the rep super early. He'd give me the rep and that it'd just be like, you know, one, possibly two scores. Wolf Trap was brand new because I did six roles that season, <laughs> plus two scenes that in which I had, you know, like pretty big roles. Like basically the whole spring, you know, I had a lot of performances to get through, but then now I have these new <laughs> scores that I'm like, all right, we're, well, <laughs> we're really digging in here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was happy that the Barber of Seville was on the list because, as you know, we did it together. I was like, I know that music. But the issue was I was a different person last time I did that show. Uh, and yeah, and it ended up not working in my favor because there are a couple of scenes where it's just Bartolo and Basilio. And I found myself saying the wrong person's line. Often. Oh. <laughs> 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 so. Yeah, <laughs> Wolf Trap certainly had my mind in bundles. I also was um, presented with the wonderful challenge of covering a role in a show that I was also in. Uh, in Ariadne, I was the wig maker, and Tara Faircloth was our director, and she staged this crazy, like, basically... The music master, the wig maker, and the lackey were always on stage because she had basically what was an offstage thing to what the theater of Ariadne was on stage. So you could see us, you know, doing people's hair and arguing over things and dealing with props and stuff like that. But in the cover run, you had to know the staging of the person that you're covering. And I'm like, well, that sucks because literally all the time I'm on stage, as the wig maker, I'm also in a different place. So I ended up having to re request like extra rehearsals because I was like, I literally don't know what's happening because my back is to who I'm covering now and we're getting staged at the same time. Uh, so it was weird balancing that. That being said, um, it really showed me the capacity that I had for learning music in a short amount of time. Uh, and it presented me with a whole bunch of professional opportunities that I did not think possible. Lawrence Brownlee was the Feline artist in residence. So he was just hanging around uh, the barns for like three weeks of our summer. I was like, hello. We had a lot of conversations about being a black artist in this business. And it just, you know, it's very encouraging and strange. You know? <laughs> like you just see like such a star walking around and you're like, oh, wow. Uh, He's playing ping pong on the back and whooping everybody, too. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he also play so, tennis? Yes, he does. Okay. And yeah. he was asking people to play with him, like, during that thing. But after we saw him on the ping pong table, I was like, no, mm -mm. unless it is volleyball, you won't catch me out there embarrassing myself. <laughs> <laughs> I can say you've you've had a different perspective on that journey as well. Um, 
being African-American in the United States and growing up in Florida. I'm hoping that it's okay for me to ask you to tell me a story, because as musicians and artists, that's what we do best. Can you tell me your story? So when I was very, very young, um, my mother used to be a teacher. She was a teacher of 11th grade honors English. And I remember my mom would be at the school at like five o'clock in the morning and we would not be leaving till 11 p.m. Uh, and it was always because she was over all of these clubs in which she stressed black history and stressed, you know, be proud of being black and be proud of the skin you're in and, you know, know your history, know your heritage. And, so you know, so I'm like two or three sitting up there in the presence of these people uh, and in the presence in the presence of my mother, who is inspiring students to you know really look into themselves and get to know themselves and get to know their history and their heritage, and so you know I always found that to be really cool. Um, as I got older, you know, her sights turned to me a little bit, uh, and uh, we started talking about um, the civil rights movement. And my mom got me this book I will never forget, uh, and she's gonna laugh when she hears it. But um, it was called Free at Last, and it discussed the about 40, it's a little bit more than 40 people that lost their lives in the civil rights movement that are recorded. Uh, and each page was a different, gruesome story of how someone died within the civil rights movement. And it really, really affected me. You know, I had not really experienced any of the type of racism that was detailed in this book, you know, I had been around for a couple of questionable things. Like my mom, in when I was in first grade, I was at this Montessori school and the teacher was racist. I was in trouble every day and I would never know how I ended up there. Like, it was like, wow, I'm getting a note home to my mother every day, uh, but my grades are all A's. So it, like, you know, something's not adding up. Um, turns out there was quite a bit of conversation between my mother and other members of the staff and then eventually the teacher that basically indicated that the um, teacher was discriminating against me. And, you know, at the time I was like six years old, uh, but I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, well, I'm at a different school now, so that's the end of that. Um, but here I am now with this book in my hand, like, you know, being black isn't necessarily as cakes and roses as you may think it is. It got a little hairy towards the end of my um, my um, middle school life. I was 14. I'm just going to add another trope of marginalization, so I hope everyone's ready. Um, I started to really take note of the fact that I was attracted to boys. Uh, and I had sort of ignored it for the longest time. You know, I, I was like 14 at the time my mom was married to someone who was very abusive to me. Originally it was physically, but at that point it was completely mentally. Like it was just like emotional abuse on the daily. And I never felt comfortable enough to be myself. And he would isolate me from people that would allow me to be myself. My grandparents would allow me to be myself. He'd like stop me from talking to them for months at a time, but they lived 30 minutes away from us. Um, my aunt 
was super open. And my uncle, when she married him, uh, you know, they were super open and let me be myself. But I wouldn't see my aunt for months. So, you know, I had all these people that were super in my support, but, you know, I was cut off from them because he would try to isolate me. Uh, but I remember there was this one Saturday morning, my mom came into my room and she's like, I want to talk to you. We were talking about relationship stuff. And I just blurted out, mom, I like boys and girls. We all knew that I didn't like girls, but listen, I had to find some kind of middle ground <laughs> so I don't hurt anybody here. Um, so my mom was like, oh, okay. She was like, is that how you really feel? Like, she was like, is that like, are you, do you feel like forced to say that? I was like, no. I was like, honestly, I feel better. And she was like, oh, okay. Well, she's like, I love you no matter what. And she was just super nonchalant about the whole situation. Um, fast forward a couple of days, my mom mentions it to my stepdad at the time. He freaks out and immediately starts calling me this pedophile and you know, black men aren't meant to be feminine. And that's what you get for always being close to your mom. Because my mom, you know, she was a single mom. I grew up till I was about six. And when she got married to this man, um, it was just her and I, you know, us against the world. So we were really close. And oftentimes, well, I really didn't like him for the whole time they were married. Uh, but, you know, like towards the end, it was just like, you know, we got into physical altercations. Like it was like crazy. He took me all kinds of out of my character because he was so cruel to me all the time. And this was one of the examples. Um, so he was talking about how, you know, I should have stuck with him and, you know, he's the real man. And because I'm always hanging around my mom and my grandma, you know, I never learned how to be a man. And now I'm up here liking men. And then he, dotted it, I guess, like, crossed it all up by saying um, I would never be able to be alone with my little sister again. And I was like, what? Like, I was like, ah. And he literally suggested that I was a pedophile because of what I had shared. And I was like, I was so confused. Uh, so I went back in the closet for the entirety of high school uh, and didn't come out again until I went off to college because there was this weird dissonance within me. Uh, and it was, you know, perpetuated by the churches I was in and the people that I was around sometimes that, you know, as a black man, you have a duty and it's this hyper-masculine duty. You can't show emotion. Your mental health has to be in tip top shape all the time. If you don't, you are letting down your family's bloodline. Uh, and then I shifted to music and I felt so much more free and just coming to University of North Florida and Jacksonville and all that, it was such just like it was cathartic, you know, I got to really unpack all of the trauma of trying to be this and trying to be that. Now I'm like actually growing from it and growing into who I really am and leaning into this existence as this performer and you know, being in love with artist, the artistry of others and allowing myself to, you know, absorb what's useful to me and really grow from it. What do you, what do you think our generation of kids, the millennials and the zillennials, the generation Z, 
needs to do to to truly make the world a better place for the next generation where we're all going to make mistakes our parents generation made made mistakes their parents generation made mistakes but hopefully i'm i'm hoping that we can move towards a more collective future what do you think oh yeah i i think that we're already making so much more progress than we were before i think that this recent string of slaying specifically in the united states have created the citizens of the entire earth with a very fundamental question. Do you admit that people of color are regularly mistreated by their non-people of color friends and police and systemic pieces of government that are literally like meant to lock them in the worst washer cycle ever of poverty and being subjected to police brutality? Or do you just simply say, well, you know, it hasn't happened to me. If you choose not to see the discrepancy, then clearly you're comfortable in your privilege. And that's just, you know, something that we're looking to dismantle because it's really going to hurt us. It even hurts us in the opera industry. Like, it's one of those things where um, I feel that we accept a lot of abuse that can come from these archaic mindsets simply because old money plays a big factor in our industry, right? And that was one of the, probably one of the only negatives that, about my experience at Wolf Trap is that we were coached to, you know, somewhat deflect and they were like, they'll be on our side. But I had two situations in which a donor approached me and said something very problematic. Can I ask what they asked? Oh, yeah. So... At our welcome reception, we had been there maybe two weeks. And the second person that I spoke to, we had been there for maybe four minutes, said, well, do you ever shower? How do you wash your hair? Oh, my God. And I was like, ooh, wow. And, you know, there are people all around. And I, it was just sort of like one of those things where I'm like, um, you know, my hair adds a lot to my artistry. Do you want to talk about singing? Like, it was hard to redirect because, you know, that's such a pointed question. It was like, this man is literally somewhat calling me dirty because I have locks, but I didn't want to seem disrespectful. I found myself very restrained because I was like, oh, I don't want to be seen as a black man right now. And I know what I was told in this info session the day before about donors being icky. So I just kept it moving. And I'm thinking I won't have any issues with that. But I also actively found myself avoiding donors unless, like, I absolutely had to talk to them. And I was like, I shouldn't feel this way. Like, I really shouldn't. No, um, you shouldn't so feel I, that I way myself... and you shouldn't be asked or inadvertently or directly asked to be weary of donors. Right. Like, it, it felt like we had no protection going exactly. into it. And it was like, if it happens, report it to us. But, like, you might still see that donor. Um, so I found myself basically trying to avoid as many donor things as possible. I'd like separate myself from because I just didn't want to deal with it. Towards the end of the summer, we started having donor event after donor event. And it was like, okay, like things are coming to a close. On the last night of the program, there's this big, uh, uh, the dinner before the Barber of Seville that night. Uh, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg came and it was really cool. And, this man who was related to, uh, I think her name is Catherine Feline Schaus. She was the 
um, founder of the entire Wolf Trap Park. Her grandson was at my table with his wife, uh, and he said, you know what I've never seen to me? He said, a Rastafarian opera singer. He's like, isn't that cool? You're a Rastafarian opera singer. You know, that was the only thing that I felt was, you know, a a short sighting uh, on their thing is that you just had to feel stuff like that. Because I didn't feel okay to respond and be like, that's inappropriate, you know. But I say all that to say, there are these crazy, crazily problematic people. We see more and more people like, did you see all that drama with the Richard Tucker Foundation? Yeah, of course. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. my gosh. It's it's not only that there are problematic people, it's that in 2020, it shouldn't be you that's accountable for what that person is saying. It right. should be everyone who's around you, including the administrator who's supposed to be there for you. I hope that kind of message uh, starts to grow even more <laughs> so people get it. Oh, I I think that people will absolutely begin to get it because I think there's been much more conversation about it. I think that people didn't understand that the last thing you want to do is go off and not listen and talk over them about, you know, like weird performative justice. Um, but the best remedy to this issue is to actually listen to our artists of color and see how they're being abused in our communities and see how we can stop that. I I just think that we're in a very important time, like the tides are turning and I feel very excited about it because it seems like there are a lot more open ears and open hearts because, you know, this is a very real problem that affects everyone, not just black people. Uh, And I am very hopeful about the amount of people that I've seen get on the right side of history. able to make music during quarantine are there any projects that you're working on that you can share with us so i've actually kept pretty busy i finished my master's degree you know in quarantine woo class of 2020 thank you so i was still making music quite a bit along with doing zoom rehearsals for the opera course which unfortunately stopped when we canceled the rest of the performances for 2020 um but you know, I was making a lot of music, still taking lessons with Cesar, who's my teacher. I've been able to ch- keep my church job. That's actually a funny situation. So I had quit originally when I got my SFO contract. And Easter Sunday, which was April 7th, was supposed to be my last day. Before he could audition anyone, it was sort of like, okay, well, first of all, it's not going to be a choir anymore. It's just going to be the set leaders. Secondly, uh, I can't have new people in here right now. I was like, oh, well, I couldn't do a Thursday rehearsal, so it worked out. So I've just been working at my church job on Sundays. I'm planning a little recital there for September 12th, uh, and I'm going to be doing that with my church director, John Carl Hurton. Uh, he's really cool. He's a great organist, pianist, harpsichordist, anything you need, uh, and just a great collaborator in general. So. <laughs> I'll be really excited about that. Um, as for other solo ventures, I'm doing as much as I can, still taking lessons and um, getting stuff together for competitions that are all going to be online. 
to close off our conversation, I've been, I've every conversation I have, I ask our guests what's on their quarantine playlist and I put it on our um, collective noteworthy playlist. So what have you been listening to? I mean, uh, you, you made, you mentioned Mariah Carey and Beyonce. So I'm just like assured that those two are in there. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I'll just, I'll, I'll give you, okay. So I have three artists that are like my, my bread and butter, heart and soul. So I call um, Beyonce is my relevant queen because, you know, so every time she drops something, she's at the top of the chart. Mariah, I love her, but she is my irrelevant queen because mm-hmm. <laughs> she still she still makes good music, but she you knows not nearly as in the mainstream as it used to be. And, we, you know, we all bought to Daydream and Butterfly and Rainbow, but nobody really gets down to caution. But I get down to caution. I, I'm a re- really big fan of her. And then Whitney is my dead queen. Miss <laughs> uh, Whitney Houston. Oh my gosh. That was the first celebrity I ever cried over. Well, actually that might've been the only celebrity I've ever cried over when they died, but literally Whitney's entire discography, even just Whitney, which was her album from like O2 where she split with Clive Davis and was just with LA Reed and everyone hated it. Like it was like her worst reviewed album. Um, I still bop to some songs on that. So those have been the three. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of like me on my pop side and oh, all of Beyonce's four and Whitney's uh, second album, Whitney. Those are all of the, the top. And then for classical, I've just been listening to this level I'm recording. Um, Callis is me, me, which I know can be a little bit questionable at times, but I love you, Miss Callis. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm like, listen, the emotion is correct. There might be a couple of things, you know, just because, you know, she was past her prime. But, like, girl, she could still make you cry. I don't care. Uh, and Anamofo, one of the best Muzetas I've ever heard. I like, <laughs> basically, I come to that recording for her. She gives me everything that I need. That act, too, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Well, Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and thank you for speaking with me. I, um, we spent about a month and a bit together in the Czech Republic. Um, and I got to know you as an, as a, uh, artist and colleague on stage. And that was a blast. Um, but thank you for introducing me to Will, uh, the person. Um, I don't think we got much time to, to really, uh, get to, to get to know each other and I'm and I'm excited to see where our friendship goes after after this conversation thank you so much for coming on oh yeah thank you for asking me I'm so happy to be here and I'm I'm glad we got to have a great conversation <laughs> yeah um, please support your local arts and uh, cultural institutions um, please keep self-educating and do not be afraid uh, of asking informed questions because that's when the real dialogue can begin. And as always, thank you, thank you to Mr. Duncan Watts-Grant for um, editing and producing this show with me. Thank you for listening. <laughs>